Tonight we're going to start what should be, I think, will be a lengthy study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I don't think we'll look at every passage and every verse in there. Uh, some of the chapters are just a lot of names, and so we will hit some of those things, but we probably won't look at every verse and every chapter in both of those books, but we are going to spend several, several weeks at least in uh, each book, I would imagine. We're going to study them back to back because in the Hebrew Bible, they're actually one book. Most conservative scholars believe that Ezra, to be the primary author of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I say he's the primary author because in, in Ezra, for example, Ezra 1 through 6 actually takes place significant years before Ezra's time. Uh, the, the stuff in Ezra 7 through 9 are written in Ezra's first person perspective. And then when you get to chapter 10 of Ezra, it's written during his time, but it's written in the third person. And then when you go to Nehemiah, clearly significant portions of the book are written by Nehemiah himself in what appears to be his personal journal. So what most scholars believe is that Ezra serves as a, both a writer in some cases and an editor in others. Right? He collected the writings, he put them together, he filled in some gaps uh, and gave us this one, which in the, again in the, in the Hebrew Bible is just one book of, I don't even know what it's called, but it's Ezra and Nehemiah. But the story of Ezra and Nehemiah really doesn't begin in Ezra. Uh, it actually begins in the Old Testament further back in Deuteronomy, particularly I would say in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, God lays out covenant responsibilities. Responsibilities that, that He will keep to Israel and responsibilities that Israel is to keep to Him. Now, Israel's responsibility, they were to keep God's law. That was their agreement that they had agreed to do. And then if they did that, God would bless them, God would conquer their enemies, and they would live long in the land of promise. However, if Israel did not obey God's law, again, per their agreement, then God would curse them, He would cause them to be defeated and conquered by their enemies, and He would cause them to be taken out of the land where they would serve their enemies. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that if there is one thing that Israel was bad at, it was actually keeping God's law. They broke their end of the agreement time after time. The book of Judges is kind of a a great example of what happens throughout the, the entire Old Testament. Right? It details a cycle of God blessing the people. There's prosperity, there's peace, there's all of the things that God, would, God said would happen if they followed Him. But then there began a, a series of the people rebelling and straying against away from God in a variety of ways. So God would send prophets to the people and He would call on them to repent of their sins and turn back to God and keep the covenant that they agreed to. The people would reject the prophet and his message. God would allow the people to be defeated. And the people would live in this defeat for a series of years. It varied from time to time. But then there always came a point in which it said that they would cry out to the Lord their God for help. And in that time, God would hear. God would show compassion. God would raise up a deliverer who would then come and lead the nation out of this captivity or out of this, this time of oppression and being being defeated, and they would again go to obeying God. There would be a time of prosperity that would lead to rebellion, and on and on. The cycle would repeat throughout the book of Judges for hundreds of years. But the cycle continues after the book of Judges throughout Israel's history. Now God's mercy and grace is demonstrated time after time by Him withholding that final judgment of kicking them out of the land, 
But after around 700 years, God's patience came to an end and this judgment fell on them. Jerusalem was conquered. The temple of God was plundered and destroyed. The walls of the city were torn down and the people were taken away to Babylonian exile. Now, all throughout Israel's history, false prophets were a problem. In the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, when the Israelites were living in sin and they were pushing away from God, God sent prophets to say, repent, turn back to me, don't live this way. Judgment will fall if you don't turn back to me. Well, while the real prophets of God were taking the message of repentance, the false prophets were going to the people and saying, no, 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 you're fine. Peace. Safety, prosperity, everything's going to be okay. God is okay with the way you're living, the things that you're doing. He's, he's not bothered by those things any longer. And then as it got closer and closer for the Babylonians to come, God would call on the prophets to say, repent, and then just surrender the prophets and it will go well. Or surrender the Babylonians and it will go well with you. And the false prophets would say, no, 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 the Babylonians will not so much as set foot within the gates of Jerusalem. We, God will defend this city and his people. Well, obviously the false prophets are called false prophets for a reason. They were wrong, they were lying. And the city was destroyed, the temple was raised, the people were taken into Babylonian captivity. While they were in Babylonian captivity, the false prophets continued to be a problem. They told the people, don't get comfortable. Don't make homes because you're not going to be here long. God told me that he is about to come and lead us out and take us back to the promised land. Meanwhile, Jeremiah writes to them in Jeremiah 29. He says, build houses, raise families, plant vineyards. You're going to be here a long time, which they were about 70 years uh, in all at the beginning, at least. Now, part of God's promise always was that he would bring them back to the promised land after a time of exile. And after the 70 years was accomplished, God started the process of bringing the people back to repopulate the promised land with the, Israel, with the Israelite people. And this return, it happened in basically three waves. The first wave was under Zerubbabel in about 586 B.C. Now, the primary focus of this group it was to resettle the promised land. It was to restart the worship of Yahweh by rebuilding the altar uh, to offer the required sacrifices and then rebuild the temple. The second wave came under Ezra about 80 years later, around 458 B.C. Ezra's primary goal was spiritual and religious renewal and revival. And then finally a third wave came uh, from under Nehemiah, about 445 B.C., and Nehemiah's primary concern was to rebuild the wall, uh, kind of to rebuild the dignity of the people by rebuilding the wall. Now, those three returns and how the people did the work of God are really what these two books are all about. That's what all the book is about. Uh, and throughout these books, we learn several lessons. That's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight, some of the lessons that we're going to see as we go through the books. One of the things that this is recently, I'm still reading in Nehemiah as a part of my daily Bible reading. One reason that we're doing this is that God has really been speaking to me through this. As we, as a people of God, seek to do the work of God in Gaiman, we're going to learn a lot from Ezra and Nehemiah. We learn a lot of things from them about how they accomplished the work, what God did in them, what God did through them, what God did 
for them. So this is going to be more than just a lot of, that's kind of neat information. Hopefully it's going to be instructive for us as we seek to do the things that God would have us to do. So throughout the books, there are several lessons that we're going to receive repeated, several main themes. The first is that God is sovereign over nations and kings. Now probably the, the most important lesson, and it is the very first lesson we learn in these books, it is that God is sovereign over nations and kings. We learn this right off the bat. Look at Ezra 1. That would be page 362. Ezra 1 and 1 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth of the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, among all of you of his people? May God be with him and let him go back to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men... Of his place, help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides all the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, so God stirs the heart of King Cyrus, and what he does is he just basically writes a decree saying, I think it's time to go back and rebuild the temple of your God. Anybody that's a Jew that was from, that's from there originally, if you want to go home, you can. If you want to go home, you go home, you rebuild the temple. And if somebody from around your one of your neighbors is going home, I think you ought to give them stuff. I think you ought to give them gold. You ought to give them stuff to help them on the journey. You ought to give them stuff to help make the journey and to begin to restart the worship of the Lord. Now, again, Cyrus is a pagan king. It's not he's not a worshiper of God. There's he makes some statements about God that are true, but they're not necessarily indicating that he fully converted to Judaism and began to worship the God of heaven. Keep in mind, most nations outside of Israel at this time, they were polytheistic. They believed in all kinds of gods. So to add the God of Israel to their pantheon of gods wasn't anything major. And so what's happened is, this guy's not a believer, he's not a worshiper of God that's now saying, hey, we've got to do the will of God. Instead, what's happened is you have a pagan who God has moved in his heart and got him to say, I think all the Jews ought to go home and begin to worship the Lord again. This is God being sovereign over the nations and over kings. We see this lesson again uh, in Ezra 7. We won't look at it. 11 through 26. As King Artaxerxes makes a similar proclamation about 80 years later. Ezra determines to send Ezra home. And Ezra can go back and he can begin to teach and preach about God and instruct the people in the ways of God. And then in Nehemiah, we are going to turn there, turn to Nehemiah 1. We see again uh, this same picture that God is sovereign over nations and kings. The story of Nehemiah is he's the cupbearer to the king. People from Jerusalem after Ezra's return come back to visit him. They tell him that the walls are still down. They've been down for quite a while. But Ezra, I mean Nehemiah, I think, seemed to believe that they should have been rebuilt by this time. And hearing that the walls of his city are down sends him into Really, it would be a deep depression kind of funk thing. And he begins to just fall down and pray and fast and seek the Lord for guidance. 
And one of the things he's going to do, he's already determined by the end of chapter 1 that he is going to ask the king to do something. So in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy or favor in the sight of this man, the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, chapter 2 goes on, verses 1 through 8. Ezra goes before the king to do his job as the cupbearer. The king sees that he's sad and says, what's going on? Nehemiah explains the problem with the nation. The walls are down and the king says, well, what what do you want to do? Which Nehemiah says, I want to go back. I want to rebuild the walls. And the king says, okay, I think that's a good idea. How long are you going to be gone? What are you going to need? And not only does the king allow Nehemiah the freedom to go back and rebuild the wall he writes letters saying one let him pass from here to there give him whatever he needs I mean basically the king is funding the trip back and not and funding the rebuilding of the wall and again king king and Nehemiah is not a believer in God there's no indication that he is a worshiper of God this is just God working in a pagan king's life to allow him to enable him to fund the mission, rebuild the walls, and and work to accomplish God's will in the world, which is what God wanted to do. And for us, there there has to be great comfort in knowing that God is sovereign. Now one of the things that has happened in our day, I'm afraid, is that the phrase, God is in control, it's become kind of an overused cliche. And we have to watch out for that, because if that happens, we kind of lose the comfort of it. We lose the comfort that God is in control. Or, if we're not careful, we we just don't really believe that God is sovereign over nations and kings. And the reason it's important that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are confident that God is sovereign over nations and kings, is that this world is a scary place. There are constantly all kinds of things going on in our world that, would, that if we would allow them, would induce deep and abiding fear in our hearts. And when we're afraid, we look to something or someone to give us, to relieve that fear, to give us what we feel is a sense of control. If we do not go to a sovereign God who rules over nations and kings, we will go to something or someone else. And the reality is, when we go to that something or someone else, and we begin to put confidence in that, and find comfort in that, and seek our peace in that, that is a form of idolatry. But we have to be certain that God is sovereign. Right? That no matter how bad any political situation may be, no matter how bad the, the wars and the rumors of wars may be, our God has not lost not the the smallest amount of control over it. That He can at any moment step in and make anything He wants to happen, happen. And trust Him, serve Him, be devoted to Him, and not any of these other things that would seek to become our comfort. Several years ago there was a pastor from Dallas who on Thanksgiving morning had fell down had a seizure. Turned out he had a a massive brain tumor. That was a bad one. He was told in that time that probably he wouldn't survive. Um, that when they, they were going to try to do some things to get rid of the tumor, 
but it was unlikely it was going to work. And if it did, it would leave him significantly diminished in his intellect and his abilities after that. And he, he made a video talking about the diagnosis and what he was told. And in it, what he's part of what he said, the only thing I, I, on the whole video I remember was that he said God was sovereign over his life. And that that sovereignty, that gave him comfort. It was like a warm blanket on a cold day. Live or die, he was in God's hands. He was comforted and confident in that. That's the kind of confidence we have to have, that our God is sovereign over kings and over nations. So that's the first lesson. Second lesson we're going to learn, again, over and over, is that God's word is central to God's work. Something that we see throughout Ezra and Nehemiah is the importance of God's Word. It, it, is, it plays a, a really important role all throughout it. right? In, in three ways primarily. One, we learn over and over again that God keeps His Word. Right? That God does what He says He's going to do. And this is kind of an exciting thing that we see in these books is that God always keeps His Word. Now there's a lot of ways that we see this throughout this book, and we'll go through it and we'll see. But the two that stood out to me most as I was reading through is first in the exile itself. I mean, the book starts, Ezra basically starts with them in exile, the proclamation coming out that they can go home. That exile is by itself an example of God keeping His word. God had said to them over and over again, I am eventually... You're going to force my hand and I will kick you out of the land. And then when they kept going, they took God's long suffering for granted. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. But then also the return. Right? Look at Ezra 1 again. Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. And we are going to go back and forth throughout the books, throughout the lesson tonight. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia... That word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That the word of the, pro- of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Right? So, Jeremiah said, you're going to be here a while, but you also are going to come home at some point. And what we see is, this is a fulfillment of God's promise. God had said, I will kick you out. And he did. But God also said, I'm going to bring that exile to an end and I'm going to bring you home. And then he did that as well. Now, The key thought I had about these two ideas is that God will do all that He has said He will do, both both good and bad. And I don't know if to say good and bad is the right way to say it, but I didn't know any other way to say it. Because there are all kinds of promises in Scripture that we know are, are good. They are encouraging. They're comforting. We look to those in times of despair, discouragement, and weakness. But there are also things that God has said He will do that necessarily aren't comfortable. They aren't what we would call encouraging. They don't necessarily make us feel good. Right? Things like um, you reap what you sow. Things like the Lord, those the Lord loves, He chastens. That those who believe on Jesus are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. That all whose name is not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Right? Those, those are promises just as surely as what we would call the, the, the encouraging one. God hears our prayers. We can cast all of our cares upon Him, for He cares for us. 
The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Right? And so what we've got to get from Ezra and Nehemiah is that all of God's promises are true. Right? The ones that we go and say, this is an encouragement to me. And the ones that we go to and say, well, that's a terrifying thought. They're all equally true. Not one promise that God has given will ever fall to the ground, Scripture says. It will come to pass. A second lesson about God, about the Word, is that God blesses those who are committed to His Word. Now turn to Ezra chapter 7. Verses 1 through 10 all kind of go together, but we're just going to look at three verses. First is verse 6. Then Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the, the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And then verse 9. On the first day, the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Very, one of the, I guess one of the first times I read Ezra and was really paying attention, those two that phrase stood out to me, the hand of God being upon him. And I thought, man, that's something I want. I want God's hand to be upon me. But then I noticed what it says in verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. But Ezra was committed to God's word. God's hand was upon him because he was committed to God's word. Now Ezra's commitment to God's word is seen first in that he would he would seek it. Right? Ezra was a student of the word. He would spend time studying the Bible. Now, something that to me is always important for us to recognize with with stories like this is Ezra didn't have a smartphone or a tablet or a computer and have an e-Bible on it that he could look at. Ezra didn't even have a, a personal copy of the Bible that he could take and sit in his easy chair and read. Where they were in Babylon, there was some centralized location where the people of Israel gathered there to worship. And that was where they kept all of the scrolls. And so if Ezra wanted to study it, he had to go there. And he had to go there and organize his time around other people that might want to do it. Right? So for Ezra to, to seek the law of the Lord, to spend time studying it, it was a pretty significant commitment. Time, effort, energy, all of these things he had to do. This was a, a serious act of devotion on his part. But not only would he seek it, he would do it. Right? Ezra was a scribe. He was a teacher. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Ezra studied for himself. He wasn't just out there studying and writing up so he could go and teach a lesson or go and share something or argue with someone. Ezra was studying for his own benefit. He studied it, he saw what it said, and then he did his dead level best to put it into practice himself. He would live what he learned, and then he would teach it. He wanted others to know God, to love God as he did, so he determined that he would teach them what Scripture says about how to live for the Lord. Right now... In Ezra's case, and we'll, of course when we get here we'll talk about this, but in Ezra's case, I think teach it does mean kind of like this. Ezra was, in fact there are a couple of times in Nehemiah where they stand up and Ezra 
teaches in what we might call a church service in a sermon format kind of way. But when we see this, we shouldn't necessarily see it as that's what we're all supposed to do because we're not all supposed to do that. But we are supposed to be able to pass on what we learn to other people. right? To, to study it, to live it, to share it with others, to pass it on. Right? God's hand was upon Ezra because he was committed to God's word. And, and this reminded me of Joshua, where God told Joshua to meditate on the word, to be courageous, to do the word. And in so doing, God would ensure that Joshua prospered wherever he went. Right? God's, God blessed Joshua. His hand was on Joshua because of his commitment to God's word. So God keeps his word. God blesses those committed to his word. Then God works through his word. When the people of God came back from exile, they were very far from the people God intended them to be. In a lot of ways, they were very much Babylonians. They were Babylonians in values, priorities, attitudes, actions, and reactions. And all of this had to change in order for them to, to be the people that God wanted them to be. The primary way that God did this was through His Word. But in Ezra 9 and 10 and Nehemiah 8 and 9, it tells about two periods of revival that happened. And in both periods of revival, it was focused on God's Word. Later, and we'll see this in just a few minutes, but some of the people that God worked through were prophets like Haggai and Zechariah that God sent to say, thus says the Lord. Right? So the way God shaped them into being the people He intended them to be, it was through His Word. Right? In, in Ezra... 8 and 9, he saw that the people were not doing what God wanted them to do. And he began to sit down and weep and mourn over their people. And the Bible says that those who trembled at the word, they joined with him. They trembled because they understood the severity of their sins. And they, they went with Nehemiah or Ezra and they mourned and they led to fasting, praying and a bit of revival. And then Nehemiah 8 and 9 People gathered to listen to the word for long periods of time and then responded the way they were supposed to. This was part of my Bible reading today. Um, in, in, I think it's in 8, Nehemiah 8. They listened from morning to midday. And then they went into, they, they read that they were supposed to do the, the festival of shelters where they moved out of their homes and lived in tents in the street. And so they did it. The Bible said they hadn't done that since the time of Joshua. Right? They, they listened to the Bible. They said that's what we're supposed to do, so they did it. And then during this time of this festival, they would gather together every day and they would have the Word of God and they would spend a quarter of the day hearing the Word of God read to them and they would spend a quarter of the day repenting over all the things they were doing wrong contrary to the Word of God. Right? It was the Word that God was using to shape them to be the people they were supposed to be. Of course, the lesson for us is that we have to ensure that God's Word stays central to anything that we do. I mean, do we want to see the work of God prosper in our lives? Well, then we better be people of the book. Do we want to see the work of God prosper in our church? We better be sure the Word is central to everything we do here. Do we want to see the, the work of God prosper in Guyman? We need to be sure the Word is central. The Word is central. It, it has to be. In order for the work of God to, to accomplish the things that God wants it to accomplish. So, God 
keeps his word, God blesses his word, God or blesses those committed to his word, and God works through his word. And thirdly, God works through people to accomplish the work. Now, so lesson one, God is sovereign over nations and kings. Lesson two, God's word is central to the, God's work. Lesson three, God works through people to accomplish his work. One of the great reminders in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God works through through people. And we see this all throughout the book. Right? When, when God wants the people to go home, he works through kings, even pagan ones, to make this possible. When God wants someone to lead his people back home and start their religious life back on the track that it's supposed to be, he works through people like Zerubbabel in Ezra 1 through 6. When the people begin to falter in the work of God, um, he works through prophets like Haggai, Zechariah to encourage them. Um, when God wants to bring revival and spiritual renewal to his people, he works through people like Ezra. When God wants to encourage his people to rebuild the wall around the city, he works through men like Nehemiah. And we know those names, we know those guys, and so what we often can do if we're not careful is we can limit the work to them. They, they were kind of the ones. But really, when you read the books, what you find is, yes, they were, I mean, Haggai and Zechariah, they have their own books in the Bible. Uh, Zerubbabel is the primary focus of chapters 1 through 6. Ezra, the book has his name on it. Nehemiah has his name on it. We think those are the guys. But they're really not the only ones involved, not by a long shot. They're typically, they're just the guys up front. Look at Ezra chapter 2. In verse 1 it says, Now, these are the people of the province who came back from captivity, of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, everyone to his own city. These are the ones who came with Zerubbabel. And then it just goes on to list names of people and numbers of people from particular tribes or families that goes on for 50-something verses, just giving name after name, group of people. Now, all of the stuff that Zerubbabel did, rebuilding the altar, restarting worship, rebuilding the temple, Zerubbabel could not have done that alone. It took all of those people to repopulate the land. It took all of those people to rebuild the altar. It took all of those people to restart the sacrifices. It took all of those people to rebuild the temple. And it's not just during Zerubbabel's time. Look at Ezra chapter 8. It says, these are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon, the reign of King Artaxerxes. And then it just begins to list person after person who went with Ezra. Right? All that Ezra did in teaching the people of God how to follow God, to properly worship God, to, to know what kind of people they were supposed to be, none of that could have been accomplished without all of those people. Ezra alone would not have been enough. But now turn to Nehemiah 3. And I'm not going to... It just begins in Nehemiah 3. is all about people. Different people and where they worked on the wall. And what they did to help rebuild the wall. So all that Nehemiah did in rebuilding the wall... 
reestablishing the city as a place where it could prosper. He did it because he had people like this that worked with him. There's no way Nehemiah could have done it on his own. So the lesson for us is several, I guess, but one is that God works through all kinds of people to accomplish His work. Not just those who are named and known. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, we know their names, but they are not the only ones that did the work. They are just a handful of the thousands of people it took to bring about all of the victories that we see in these books to accomplish the work of God. Right? Whatever... And I guess the second thing is that we we all have to do it. Right? I mean, we all have to do the work. Because none of these... I mean, again, Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, they were unique in some ways. They had particular skills, particular gifts. That's one reason they were the ones that have their names up there. They were the leaders. But it also took regular people. Common people, uneducated people, uh, priests and prophets. and I mean, you name the kind of person that there could have been in the land, that, that could have been among the Israelites. And it took those kind of people, men and women, boys and girls, people of all ages and all, all social categories, all kinds and all walks of life. And then they, they actually had to do the work. I mean, they, there was actually stuff. That they had to do. They had to, to walk from Babylon to Jerusalem. They had to build, to sacrifice, to do those sort of things. So for us, if we want to see God do a work in our lives, then we have to do something. I mean, God is not just going to supernaturally reach down and change us without us putting forth some effort. There is work that we are going to have to do. If we want to see God work through our church, we have to work. God's not just going to supernaturally reach down and and bring about whatever changes need to be done in our church or our community. He's going to work through people. That's the way He has chosen to do it. And so all of us are necessary. All of us have to do the work. God always works through people to accomplish His will and His work anywhere. Fourthly, God's work always faces opposition. We will face opposition anytime we determine we're going to work for God. Look at Ezra 4. I mean, best I could tell in Ezra 4, they've just barely arrived. And it says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, to the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed for him since the days of somebody... King of Assyria who brought us here. So 
right away we see that there's an immediate opposition. Right? In this case, it's an opposition to compromise. Because God's pretty particular about who gets to worship Him. They have to be a follower of Him. And all of this stuff has to be done by the people of God, not people who worship God and Baal. So Zerubbabel says, no, 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 you're not really, you're not really a worshiper of God. You, you don't have a part in this. So it makes them mad. And then look at verse 4. The people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them. The word trouble carries with the idea of make them afraid. Troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So they began to work against them. And they pretended first they were coming to join them when they weren't. They opposed them by trying to discourage them, trying to make them afraid, and then trying to frustrate them. If you ever tried to serve Jesus, you know. You face this kind of opposition. Now you see it all throughout the books. Uh, but all the opposition that they face, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, all have one goal in mind. Turn to Nehemiah 4. But so it happened, Nehemiah 4 and 1. So it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious, very indignant, and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubble, the stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox run, he'll break down, break down their stone wall. So they're mocking them. They hear it, they come, they're angry, they begin to mock them, right? To belittle them, to humiliate them in all that they do. Now look down at verse 7. It says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Right, so now they're trying to make everybody confused and afraid, keep all kinds of things going. And then look at verse 11. And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And there's the purpose, to cause the work to cease. All the opposition they were facing, whether it was Zerubbabel or Ezra or Nehemiah, was always to stop the work. That was the main goal. Opposition, it, it's a given as we seek to serve Jesus and do the work of God in, in our lives, our church, and our community. And we'll face opposition from all kinds of places. The world, the flesh, and the devil will oppose us. We'll learn from Ezra and Nehemiah that often people we thought were friends will turn out to be adversaries who are working against us. Some will be mad that we're trying to do the work of God. Some will try to discourage us. Some will try to make us afraid. Others will try to frustrate us. Others will try to embarrass us or confuse us. But all of it, all of it has one goal. To stop us from doing the work. That's the goal. But they don't have to, the adversaries don't have to cause us to go into deep sin to win. They just have to cause us to stop the work. If they can make us so discouraged, so afraid, so frustrated, so embarrassed, or so confused that we stop doing the work of God, then they win. Because that's their purpose, that's their goal. 
So if we're going to be a people of God who, who do the work of God, we have to be able to face opposition and keep going. Right? Because that's a given. So God is sovereign over nations and kings. God's word is central to God's work. God works through people. God's work always faces opposition. And then finally, God's work is messy. One of the main things, main things, I've said that I think every time, but one of the things that I've seen over and over again throughout these books is just how messy it is to try to do the work of God. I think sometimes we, and I know I do, we want the work of God to be neat, tidy, to fit into our schedules, our agendas, and our ideas. Right? We want it to kind of work like a vending machine. We, we put in a prayer for this to happen, and then out comes that result. Or we, we put in that one piece of effort, we, we share the gospel, and then out comes a conversion. Right? I mean, we, we do this, and then out pops that, which is what we expect as a result of what we've prayed or what we've done. But that's not really the way it works. God's work involves people. And people can always gum up the works and make it messy. And they can do it in, in a lot of different ways. Right? People fail. People fail. Look at Ezra 9. Ezra 9. The exiles that came back with Ezra have, have only been back a little while. A few months maybe. And it says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Egyptians or the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. And what they've done is, they were sent into exile. I mean, they've just come back from this people from like 150 years in exile, the time of Ezra. And what, what, what did they do that got them sent into exile to begin with? Well, they took part in the abominations of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They intermarried with the pagans of the land and began to worship their gods along with them. After 150 years in exile for those very things, they've been home a few months. And they're right back to doing those very same things again. They're repeating the same mistakes that their ancestors made that led to all of the problems that they've had for the last 150 years. And there are going to be times when we help people get out of a mess. And they're going to go right back into the very thing that got them into that same mess in the first place. There are going to be times when we lead people to Jesus and we work to disciple them and help them to be established in the faith. And they are going to go right back to the way they were living before they came to Christ. Sometimes people will occasionally make mistakes. And then other times people will make a lifestyle of it. Like, you, know, you know what I'm talking about there, right? Sometimes people are just going to blow it. And then sometimes people are not going to blow it. They're just going to go back and do what they had always done before. The work of God involves people. And any time people are involved, it's going to get messy. I mean, there are even going to be times where as we seek to do the will of God, we're going to make mistakes. 
Look at Nehemiah 13. This is, this is amazing. This is amazing. The people have blown it again. They've gone back and doing some of the same things again. Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall. He's got things established. He went back to the king and then comes back to check on see how things are going. And here's what he says. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashad, could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one people or the other. Right? So, same problem. So I contended with them. I cursed them. I struck some of them. And I pulled their hair. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I've got to study this out, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say I'm pretty sure that's not the way you're supposed to respond. Right? Nehemiah gets so frustrated by they're going back to the very things that caused the problem that he reacts in a way that's wrong. He reacted in a way uh, that was inappropriate. People are going to fail. Sometimes those people are going to be us. Sometimes we're going to make the occasional mistake. Sometimes we're going to react to the stressors of ministry in ways that are, are wrong. Ministry is messy. And so one of the ways we're going to see this is, is that people fail. Another way that we're going to see it is that the work is hard. Right? Look at Nehemiah 4, verse 16. It's one of my favorite parts of the story. So it was from the time, from that time on, that half my servants worked at construction, while the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor, and the leaders were behind the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves, so that with one hand they worked construction, with the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders held a sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from it on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us up here. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. So they're working hard to rebuild the wall because the threat of danger is real. They pull guard and they work. In some places, half the men pull guard and half the men work. In other places, everyone works, but with one hand... Building and with the other hand holding a sword. And they do this from sun up to sundown. And they do this every day until the work is completed. And it's hard, difficult, stressful work that they're doing. And part of what makes the work of God messy is the difficulty of it. I mean, do we want to see God work in us and through us and for us to make us like Jesus? That's, that's hard work. And even in us, that's going to be messy at times. Just us and God. Do we want to see God work in our church and through our church and for our church to make a difference in our community? It's hard work. And because it involves people, it's going to be messy. I mean, it, it just is. Ministry serving the Lord has always been hard. Always has been. Always will be. And we have to be willing to do hard work to do the work of God. And then lastly, the stakes are high. Look up at verse 14 and 15 of Nehemiah 4. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the leaders of the people of Israel, Do not be afraid of them. Remember, 
the Lord, great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Stop there. They've been facing opposition. They know it's just to stop the work. The people are getting discouraged. They're wanting to give up. Nehemiah tells them to remember two things. Remember the greatness of God. God is great. God is awesome. God will fight for us, he says. The second thing is, remember what you're fighting for. Sons, your daughters, your wives. For us, that's kind of what we have to do as well. The work is hard. The opposition will be intense. And we have to remember that God's great and awesome. And God can work through us to accomplish anything that He wants accomplished. But we also have to remember what we're fighting for. We are fighting for the the souls of our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. What What we're fighting for. It's worth the pain. It's worth the messiness. It's worth the difficulty. I mean, what we're doing is we do the work of God. It, it, it is important. I know the world doesn't think so, but it is. What we're doing when we do the work of God, it is eternally significant. That's a part of what makes it messy. I mean, if we were, if we were just playing tiddlywinks, it wouldn't matter. There's no stress, no frustration, no emotion attached to something like that. Because it's not significant. But we're not doing that. What we're doing echoes in eternity. It, it can make a difference. Heaven or hell for someone's life. And that makes it stressful. And that makes it frustrating. And that guarantees that there will be emotion attached to it. But we have to remember what the stakes are. And what we're doing. In a devotional classic, Most for His Highest, Oswald Chambers once wrote, Thank God He gives us difficult things to do. Warren Wiersbe said about this, I've lived long enough to understand the wisdom of Chambers' statement. I've learned that when God tells us to do difficult things, it's because He wants us to grow. The work of God we're called to, it is hard. And I pray... That God will use our study in Ezra and Nehemiah to prepare us for the hard work. And to help us to grow. To be the people that He would have us to be. So that we could do the things that God would want done in our lives, in our church, and in our community. We'll take time now.